With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello and welcome to the Slate Political Gab Fest for September 19th, 2019, the Twin Cities edition. The Gab Fest is live before a packed house. At the Fitzgerald Theater in St. Paul, Minnesota, we expected quiet politeness, Minnesota nice, the quiet stillness of a night ice fishing under the stars, and instead we have the raucous braying, like crazed, crazed prairie mosh pit style. I'm David Plotz of Atlas Obscura. On my far left, the man who only came to Minnesota because he thought it was Iowa. Unfortunately, he is—he's so blonde that he fits right in here. <laughs> CBS News's CBS's 60 Minutes, excuse me, John Dickerson. You know, you know, I went to camp here in we Minnesota. Did not. Yeah. Oh Grand yeah, Rapids, Minnesota. Now yeah. I remember. Camp Mishawaka. So, yeah. See, Camp Mishawaka in the house. Yeah, yeah. All right. Yeah. So, I'm just saying that I got deep. Roots in this community. I came here once to do an interview in a mall. Does that count? You did an interview in a mall. In a mall, here. yeah, yeah, once. Does you that know, count? there are, there are malls outside of Minnesota. <laughs> yeah, but it was yeah. this mall. Not Mall of America. That's <laughs> exactly. true. There is only one Mall of America, but Walked but all over it. I made so a lanyard that, in this. That state. other voice, of course, is a woman who eats her salad with a comb and her steak <laughs> with a samurai sword. Emily Bazelon of the New York Times Magazine and Yale University Law School. On today's GabFest, will it take a Democrat with decent Midwestern values to beat Trump, or can a coastal socialist elitist do it instead? Then the rise of the chaos voter. Is America in deep trouble because we're suddenly overrun with nihilistic, crazy voters who want to burn it all down? Then, when it comes to writing fiction about politics, the best there is is the Twin Cities' own Curtis Sittenfeld. We will talk about how to turn real political lives and real political wives into novels. And plus, we will have cocktail chatter. We are coming to you from the heart of Klobuchar country, the beating heart of the Klobocracy. The, the argument of her struggling campaign is that she is from a place that is the middle, not just geographically, but ideologically, and that only by nominating someone with those qualities, those credentials, will the Democrats win the 2020 presidential election. So John... Is she right about that? Ooh, I heard someone say no already. <laughs> That's a tough hometown crowd. She can't, she can't even get an amen in her, in her own pews. Uh, well, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, Senator. It's, uh, and she's so, she won by a landslide here. Yeah, well. Outperform. You I know the old the... expression, no one says, as goes the Minnesota Senate race, so goes the presidency. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> That's true. That has not worked out since yes. folks before. Dear, I've dear, heard of those dear Fritz Mondale would. And uh, Hubert Humphrey, too, right? Uh, 
Everybody. I'm but what you you want your I mean you he didn't you win okay. so there you go there's the answer to your question um first of all by the way can I say you mentioned you made reference to the New York Times story about the eating salad uh, with a um, with a comb. comb creative solutions for emergency situations I That's mean what not else what the does the president about the story is about upgrading a staff member for not having a fork Emily I was just trying to make a dumb joke I'm sorry. <laughs> You know but, me, I'm very literal-minded. Yeah, I don't you, let you get the punchline out. I'm well, so literal-minded. Yeah, I just think a candidate who has emergency solutions for, uh, I mean, solutions for emergency moments is important. Okay. Uh, is, well, this is the great question in the, in the race because what everybody's trying to figure out is what's the shape of the electorate going to look like for, for the Democrats to win the nomination and then, I mean, and then in the general election. What's the coalition going to look like? And then is that coalition movable? Is it a, is it a campaign about persuasion or is it a, um, a campaign about motivation, just your base? And the answer is that it's both. Um, but there is a big debate about um, uh, among the liberal side of the, of the Democratic Party that says we need the kind of enthusiasm that Donald Trump was able to bring out in his party, and only through an enthusiastic uh, appearance by the left will we be able to win. Other people say, well, if you look at the, the states that... In the electoral map, Wisconsin, Minnesota, Michigan, Pennsylvania, Ohio, Iowa, even if those two, those two may already be off the map, they have a disproportionate share of white working class voters in the Democratic Party, which has had struggled with them since FDR, still needs to be able to capture those kinds of voters. This is the big tension in the party. And what interests me is that what this requires is a lot of Democrats to basically do punditry about their neighbors. What do I mean? 88% of Democrats say they would vote for a woman to be president but only 44% of Democrats think other Democrats would do that. So there, we know that electability is the number one thing that Democrats care about. So they have to basically be pundits about their neighbor. We, is Emily going to vote for a woman? Well, I don't know if she is. And then that, that determines my vote if I'm a Democrat. And so that gets into very sticky uh, territory when it comes to these questions. What's the shape of the electorate? Will the traditional Democratic coalition turn out? And are we, as um, or are Democrats, trying to convince new voters or just rev up their existing ones? So, Emily, so Klobuchar is obviously struggling, but but Biden, who's like old man Klobuchar, in the <laughs> in the moderate accommodationist wing, is doing just fine. Is he? I mean, is he doing just fine for? for the, some of the reasons John talked about, that Democrats believe that a return to normalcy is possible or because people think he's the only one who can win or because low-information voters are stuck on him or because he's a great candidate. I mean, all of above, except I don't think we have a lot of evidence for the last possibility. I mean, what, I think he's... we keep waiting for him, right? Like, I think it would be great for the party if he was a great candidate. And I don't think he's bombed out, as I think we predicted before he got in the race, because he has been such a lousy candidate in previous presidential uh, cycles. Well, t- 21 weeks before Iowa. Yeah, there's a long way to go. Right. Right. I do think that his appeal has to do with other people's perception of who could get elected. I don't think that's crazy. I mean, I think there is this fundamental, you can be as feminist as they get and still think, is it possible that Elizabeth Warren or Kamala Harris could actually win? And do you want to take a risk this time around, given what happened to Hillary Clinton? Like, if a woman gets nominated and loses, is that going to be it for my lifetime? I, I wonder about that. You know, it's, it's, do, you really, do you really sit and wonder and think, well, I, I'm, maybe I should support a man because of that? 
I don't think about it in that terms for myself, but I don't, I do think there's a tension between our ideals about how gender and race and other immutable characteristics, at least legal terms, should play, and then how we think they actually do play. And I don't think it's wrong to be asking those questions and trying to poll for that issue. And I, I also think when I was writing about Warren and following her around, she has this teacherly way about um, her that some people really cotton to and other people find off-putting. And I don't think you can separate the fact that she's a woman from the way in which that plays to different audiences. One thing that's been interesting of the, the shape of the race where it is right now, there's a Wall Street Journal NBC poll that just came out and 70% of Democrats say it would be fine if she was the nominee. That's the highest of all of them. She has increased that number. She... So that says something. That's yes. important. And, uh, Democrats. I have no idea what it says, but it's inter- it's because if, and Kamala Harris's numbers have gone south hard. Huh. And so what the NBC poll shows is Biden's at thirty one, and and um, I believe this is true. Warren's at twenty six, and and Sanders is at thirteen or fourteen. Harris has gone from thirteen down to like five. She's hmm. really taken a hit, which is interesting, and I'm not sure why. You guys may have thoughts, but what it feels like is is that um, Vice President Biden has a snowball in his hands, and it's it's spring, and he's got to keep it alive <laughs> until July. <laughs> and, 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 and Elizabeth Warren, who's got a plan for everything, had 20,000 people show up in, in, in New York for her in her anti-corruption speech that she gave this week, is creating, like, I mean, she's rubbing her hands together. She's, oh, like, wait, I have, opening the shade of the airplane to Or she the has a flower, in. and it's waiting to blossom. Right? Like, she's got the thing in her hand. Leave the metaphor to John. (laughs) That could still open, but maybe it won't. But the thing is that he's got the snowball, and so she's trying to create heat, Uh and that would make the snowball melt. The The flower flower will respond to the heat. No, he doesn't buy it. All I can say is that my damn snowball has melted now. No. I liked your snowball metaphor. I was trying to extend it. Why does it matter who Democrats will vote for and what Democrats think is going to happen as opposed to the whole electorate? Don't we want to know that answer? Well, that's the question, whether you believe that the electorate is um, basically split. We're so partisan. There's nobody in the middle anymore, and it's just all about turning out your team. Um, And then there's a new thing now, and we'll get to this in the chaos um, topic, but you know, negative partisanship is, is, is more powerful now than ever before. So it ends up being basically you don't vote for your person, you but against, against the other, the other person. person. So how will that play and how do people anticipate that happening? Obviously, Democrats have a big turnout uh, benefit in Donald Trump, but he has a turnout benefit with... Does with anyone push- think that whoever wins the presidency will win with zero independent votes? That seems wrong. Well, f- well we don't even know what Who independents independent really voters? are anymore. Well, so, but they exist. Voters. There are a lot They're of them. Two Whoever they are, yeah. don't we care? We want to know what they think. Well, this is the question. A, who are they? Where do they live? And how many of them are there? Because if they live in states that don't matter, they don't matter. That's true. I was going to say there are a lot of them in my state, but you're right. And then the question is, are they people who... So Your state kind of matters. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Definitely. But there's no independence here. They're all all DFL or they're... Well, oh, white nationalists. You say that as if it's bad, but they're excited about He's dropping some DFL. Nice. Um... The, um, What's up the but, acronyms? But, the, like, hold on. Here's the thing, though. Um, the question is, okay, let's say you're... So suburban women will be something that people pay a lot of attention to because suburban Republican women 
traditionally voted Republican, might have voted for Donald Trump because they were worried about the Supreme Court, are not going to vote for him this time. So are they going to stay home or are they going to turn out and vote for the Democrat? Those are, so the question is then, how many of those are around and what does staying home mean versus voting for a Democrat? What's, what's the hurdle? And then also, there's an Andrew Yang fan out in the, in the uh, <laughs> stands. Um, and, then, um, and then there's a the question of the white, with the white working class voter for Democrats. Do they, are they pulling over those voters who voted for Obama and then for Trump? Is that a big enough group? Is that in these states? Or is that um, a, a shiny object that shouldn't be chased because you'll end up losing voters in another part of the coalition that you need? All these are open questions. And the thing is, the punditry matters because it's determining how people are making their sorting decisions. But about I also the think you left one out, which is will African-American voters in key, yeah, in key sure. states turn out in numbers 100%. the way they did and we, and we haven't seen Warren really catch on with those voters. But he's at 13 percent in the in the journal poll, and, right. and Obama with African American voters. Biden's still way ahead, but then but, when when but if people... she's the nominee, is that going to sure. stick? If she well, becomes and, the nominee, and, do you, do yeah. you, just to 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 ask this more specific question, do you Emily think this is already a two person race? Is this already a Warren Biden race? And all and even Sanders is now really. Trailing far behind in his dinghy. I've I've always been skeptical that Sanders could really grow his support. Ugh, I don't like actually using "grow" as a verb in the way I just did. Sorry about that. Your Increase. plant metaphor is withering as you I speak. Know. I got carried away. I've always been skeptical. <laughs> I've always been skeptical that Sanders could really vastly increase his support. Like, he has a super committed base. I see you out there. We neglected you in the last election cycle. I feel regretful about that. And yet, I remain skeptical, though I really appreciate his presence on the debate stage. I think that if Biden stumbles, somebody else is going to be a real contender in this race. I kind of think it would be Buttigieg, probably. Whoa. But I don't really know. But, do you, do you so, think it's two-person, John? We got so much time, nah. No, I mean, but that's the shit. I mean, I think there are probably two lanes. And so right now you've got it in the, in the liberal lane for, and the moderate lane. You've got the two people, and that'll be what, what it'll ultimately come down to. It'll be interesting to see how the sorting takes place between Sanders and Warren. A lot of Sanders voters... Um, and I know this because of the embedded CBS, Kara Cordy, and I were just talking about this. They have a, and she spends all her time with them. I the don't. The embed, that means the reporter who hangs yeah. with the well, I don't want to pret- campaign. Because when I was one of those and I was out there all the time, I would hate when people would pretend they had been when they hadn't been. So I need to give credit to the person who's out there doing the reporting, not the person who, who isn't, which is to say me. Um, <laughs> nevertheless, I have a microphone in front of me and can't. Anyway, what she was saying. Is that is that the, that Sanders voters have a passion and affection for him that is stick, not necessarily sticky. transferable. Yeah, and or and or right, not necessarily transferable. And what's going to make it transfer? And what does that look like? Um, and when does it happen? Because if you're if you if you're any kind of candidate, you want something for your transfer of of um, voters or affection. So of course this could turn. I think Sanders and Warren are playing very nice with each other in a way that suggests actually some depth of allegiance and loyalty as opposed mm. to something that's more surface level and could disintegrate at and, any time. Well, and also as he as he said when I when I interview him, this I did actually do is he said I've known her for thirty years. I right. mean I'm not gonna. Here's also another thing. So say things go south for one of the two of them, do they make a do they join forces and basically say 
we need to combine and 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 go after the the moderate or whoever's in that lane. Presumably, it's Biden, but um, could be Buttigieg, it could be uh, Klobuchar. Do Do you think, Emily, that they're the Democrats are positioning themselves on issues in a way that's going to be productive for the general? We see this sort of no. aborted push on Kavanaugh. Can I ask my question? No. No. Uh, 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 no. The abortive push on Kavanaugh on impeachment, the general push on impeachment. Warren has made this very interesting corruption attack on that I've, Trump. I'm, I think that that pulls really well. So that does that feel to you like the the main the main front, the main way to to win in 2020, or do you have do you have a sense about what they should be doing that would help them in the general? I think. I mean, this is I'm just kind of going off of the polls here and other people who look at the polls, but I think when you look at economic um, issues, the way Warren is framing them, yes, that looks like a good argument to me. It directly goes after the same discontent that Donald Trump has successfully gone after. It's populist, but it's taking the target of the populism as like America's corporate fat cats. It's addressing inequality. She has a really, I think she's very good at explaining what she thinks has gone wrong with the economy since 1980. And, and I think that's compelling. But there are other things that I don't think. What if it's right? On. What if the election's more about identity and those kinds of issues, and not an intellectual case about the, the sharing the wealth and when you share prosperity? What do you mean, Dom? I mean voters that are you in a liberal Harvard professor elitist? Yes, yes. So yeah, exactly. I mean, Trump will try to make it about that if she's the general election candidate. I mean, the thing about Warren is that she actually is from Oklahoma and. <laughs> Grew right, up, but when right? you get into identity fights, it's not like, well, actually, I'm from. I mean, well, she tells all those stories. I mean, she's made that very yeah. central, and you know whether that is enough to combat the fact that yes, she did work at Harvard. I'm not sure, but she has an actual, true, organic response to those attacks. Here's one thing I wonder about responding to those attacks and how it's going to take place and what forum and, and what one does as a candidate um, who we know that Donald Trump is going to get the nomination of his own party, or we assume, barring some uh, crazy event. So today he passed on uh, along a, uh, a tweet about uh, Congresswoman Ilhan Omar that said that she was dancing on 9-11. Okay, it was a smear. She wa- She wasn't. When he passed along that tweet, this is, by the way, the president of the United States, um, he said, this is the new Democratic Party. So this is kind of, this is super we're back, obvious, we're right? Back, we're back, we're back, yeah. This, I mean, this is obvious. Like this is neg- So then. this is negative partisanship. This is basically create an image of the opposite party that is, that is so objectionable, you won't f- vote for them. And, and it's a lie, me. sounds like. Right. So my point is, if that is where we are, and it's, where, what date are we? September 18th? Um, imagine the the escalation. How do you think about that in terms of a candidate uh, who is in the opposite party responding to something at that level? I mean, I, whoever the nominee is is going to face this. It's not going to matter. And so I think to be scared off from a more liberal candidate for that reason is a mistake. I don't think that Biden is necessarily going to be more effective mm. at responding to that. I mean, one thing, just like Biden has his strengths, and I'm happy to lay them out. But when I was listening to the word salad problematic answer he gave, with which about, you can eat, with which he ate with a cone. That's what I'm talking about. Oh, man. <laughs> when I was listening 
to that store, that answer he gave about in response to segregation, which just went all over the place, I thought, oh my God, can you imagine the debates between Trump and Biden? There's going to be, right? They're going to insult each other and then they're going to like both of them make well, no sense. they're slightly... like, Dotty. Yeah. Like, it's just going to be this really weird combination of nastiness and like wandering into the wilderness answers. Well, you know, and, and here's an interesting, uh, maybe it's not an interesting question, but it's one on my mind. Will the when people are in the Dem, when people in the Democratic Party are thinking about who their nominee is going to be and what they're going to need to do against the likely Republican nominee, do they think about it in terms of the debate stage context? Because it turns out debates don't actually affect I know. the. I think. It or do they think about it in another context, and sh- and should that change the way they think about the candidate? Yeah, I. That's a really good question. Can I ask you a different policy question? So as long my... as I get to answer it with a question. No. <laughs> no. I'm the Alice David. So here's my question to either or both of you. So in my mind, the weakness right now among the liberal Democrats is support for Medicare for all, because the idea of forcing people on to government-run health care that costs $30 trillion is not popular. The public option, the idea of choice, um, strengthening Obamacare, Medicaid for all, or some possibility of Medicare, yes. But the the Bernie version, which is in four years we end private health insurance, is not popular. So what's if Warren's the candidate, what's she going to do? Cause she's sticking to that position more right. than I expected. Although in this strange way where she's sticking with it but not sticking. I mean, she yes. says I'm on his plan but then had that um, – she never answers uh, she, whether she shilly shallied on the on the tax on the right. cost question. Is she leaving herself room to say something like, "Oh, yes. we get oh, there eventually, sh- but uh, not on the sure, line? sure." And I think yeah. as long as the Republicans do things where they're going after Obamacare, which they seem to be doing with legal challenges, the Democrats that's a stronger issue for Democrats than Republicans. And you don't have to pin yourself to that. I well, just feel like issue. she has pinned herself to it more than I would have expected. And the people at the de- last debate, sorry to be so debate-centric, who gave the best answers were Kamala Harris and Pete Buttigieg. Harris brought up the lawsuit you just mentioned yeah. against to bring down Obamacare. And Buttigieg says, I trust Americans. Why can't we have choice for all? Yeah. So the question is... Go ahead. You can applaud for Emily. Um, no, for Mayor Pete. Uh, for Mayor Pete. Emily, you can applaud for whoever you want. This is America. Um... <laughs> Uh, you can blood for yourself. Um, yeah. Congratulations. Oh, I like that. Congratulations, everyone. Um, <laughs> the thing that, that is interesting to me about, um, uh, about Medicare for All, first of all, you know, it, the, the polling for it is, is highly volatile. So people, in theory, like it. And then once you start saying what's in it, they, they, it drops like a rock. So that's one problem. The second thing is, in the context of a general election, what is the value argument behind it that, that a Democratic nominee is going to use, assuming they, they are in support of that, to make a larger case to the public? Like, is it, we don't think 30 million people should be without health care? Do we think your costs are too much and you're one illness away from bankruptcy? Do we think 146 million people on private insurance should have a new complexity in their life? What Definitely is the, not that one. No. So... <laughs> My, my, what, what interests me is whatever the set of policy proposals are that a Democrat runs on, it seems to me that the, that the only person who has, and you mentioned Kamala Harris, she was able to take the issue and make it about uh, President Trump. That seems to me to be the thing that a Democrat needs to do. And in the context of all the health care debate, almost none of them have done that successfully in a way that has real throw weight in a general election. And it seems to me if you can't do that, you're not ready for the general election. Yeah. 
Slate Plus members, you get bonus segments on the GabFest and other Slate podcasts. And today's Slate Plus segment is going to be the Q&A with our audience here in the Twin Cities. So go to slate.com slash GabFest Plus to become a member. This episode of the GabFest is brought to you by Aura Frames. Are you looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura Frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos it is super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. Aura Frames, in the notes that I have here, says moms like Aura Frames. I'm here to tell you that is like the truest statement in the world. I gave my mother an Aura Frame. She absolutely loves it. She's also always hectoring me to keep adding new photos to her Aura Frames so that she's got great new photos every week. So think about giving your mother or grandmother or aunt or sister or friend an Aura frame for Mother's Day. It was named the best digital photo frame by Wirecutter and selected as one of Oprah's favorite things. Aura frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A frames.com. Use code GABFEST at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. All right. All right. Uh, all right, dear Minnesotans. I'm going to read you some statements, and I want you to let me know if you agree with them by applauding if you do. Okay? I fantasize about a natural disaster wiping out most of humanity such that a small group of people can start over. I think society should be burned to the ground. When I think about our political and social institutions, I cannot help thinking, just let them all burn. We cannot fix the problems in our social institutions. We need to tear them down and start over. Sometimes I just feel like destroying beautiful things. Okay. Really? That's like the least appealing one. So an astonishing percentage of Americans believe some of these statements. 40%, according to a recent study, believe that we need society to, be, society to be burned to the ground. This was found by three social scientists, two Danish, one American. Um, I like to have two Danish for breakfast. Uh, and the paper is called A Need for Chaos, The Sharing of Hostile Political Rumors in Advanced Democracies. Tom Edsel of the New York Times wrote a very interesting column about that, and we're going to couple that today with another social science paper called Democracy Devouring Itself, The Rise of the Incompetent Citizen and the Appeal of Right-Wing Populism. And the reason we're going to talk about that is these two papers taken together paint a truly dire, dire, dire picture of where we are as a country. And they suggest that the United States and, in fact, possibly all democracies are even in worse shape than we suspected. So, Emily, um, I'm going to ask you, I mean, or I could do this, but what what did this Need for Chaos paper find? Why is it so unsettling? Um, So I have to say, I think that... The, so I read this like 10 times, like 40% of people agreed to this. And then I decided that if you look at those questions closely, okay, if you answer them literally and you're talking about actually burning things to the ground, that's bad. But I bet a lot of people 
I mean, I could imagine this, answered them much more in this way of like, yeah, I'm mad about some stuff and this is a flawed world and rigged system we lived in, we live in. And, and it, when you think about it that way, it's not well, as alarming. Let's, okay, yeah. but can we but describe still, what the study found? found? Yes. Well, what it found was that these folks like are really um, prevalent in those numbers you said, but that also they are likely to be spreading information on social media, that social media has... This is so. This is this big question: Is social media changing the way people communicate in a way that then takes these fringy views or these disordered, blow everything up views and allows them to spread and gain political influence in a way that is destabilizing for the democracy? The counter view is like: There's nothing new about this. We've always had rumors. We've always had disinformation. The fact that they're spreading more gets exaggerated. That when you look at people's news consumption, all Almost everybody is actually looking at multiple news stories and news sources, including mainstream ones. And we're too concerned about Pizzagate and a few of and, you know, the Sandy Hook libelous lies from and that we should stop obsessing about this because it doesn't actually make that big an effect. And there are are political scientists on both sides of this argument. Well, there's a lot going on. I'm going to take the the side, which is the people who want to burn it all down are very dangerous. So. The, what this, this study, these, these political scientists found was that when you look at sort of how disinformation spreads, it's not necessarily spread by people who have a partisan motivation. Yeah. It's not necessarily people who, who like are spreading it because they want to take down the Democratic candidate or the Republican candidate. It's spread by people who want to take down the institutions themselves. They do not believe the institutions. They want to increase chaos in the system. And that there has been a marked increase in the amount of chaos in the system because the ability of people to spread this information has grown. The number of people who believe in, in spreading this information has grown. And it's quite dangerous. And the elites, and the, the, coupled with this other paper, which sort of said the elites have lost control of elites have lost control of media they've lost control of politics they've lost control of the kind of master narrative of society and that you we're in a situation where the the kind of nihilist destructive uh, anarchic forces that these folks believe in have overtaken us and there is no way to bring them back in there's no way to rein them in um right so there's a lot of it uh, so what, one, thing, one thing is that the Pizzagate and the most extreme stories and conspiracy theories that exist on both the left and the right are only a part of the puzzle. What happens when you have chaos voters is they're happy to see chaos about a whole range of stories. And so it's not just the ones that are the most absurd, but any of the normal conflicts between urban-rural, religious-non-religious, religious, black-white, they are happy to see disinformation, misinformation create just chaos and cacophony. What that does is, so that's bigger because then that's people, that's not people who believe there's a pedophile ring in the bottom of a basement, in a basement of a pizza parlor that doesn't even have a basement. They help keep the noise and the fight on Twitter or social media. And so that's a bigger group than just the crazies. What that does is it shreds attention just in general, right? So you now have the, the what used to be the, as Andy Card, the former chief of staff under George W. Bush said, is what used to be the fringe is now the rug, is that the fringe is now in the middle of the conversation. And so it's harder to get that out of the way and then say, okay, now I'm just going to focus on this one thing. The other thing that social media has done is the something called the illusory truth effect, which is once a, a person who's mildly into chaos 
send something out that we know is in bad faith. We know is, is I mean, the, the Ilan Omar dancing on 9-11. They know it's in bad faith. They just don't give a damn. Once they spread that, once that hits you first, even the minute, and when you guys know this, but one, even the minute you then are told, no, that's not true, the first mover advantage of the false news still sticks in your head. And if the person who wants to act in bad faith keeps hammering home the thing that everybody says is a lie and keeps doing it, it sticks in your head, and that's the, the, the real danger. So you have chaos voters, then you have voters who are anxious to be fed affirmation, not information, and I think that creates a much and, larger portion and, of Emily, chaos. I know you're, you're about to jump in, but can I just make one more point about this, which is that the, so chaos, one of the things that, that's paradoxical about uh, Trump is that Trump is an agent of chaos who then offers himself as a solution to chaos. That, that one of the things he's been so successful at doing is to create and retweeting this this Omar thing as an example of it to create the mistrust and create cr- create the corruption, create the anxiety, create the fear, and then say I am the answer. Only I can fix it, and to do it with authoritarianism as his answer. And so there's a there's this paradox in Trump, which is that he is he claims to be against chaos and yet is an agent of it. And and I think if you look across in a bunch of countries, if you look in Hungary, if you look in Russia, if you look in Brazil, Poland. we have this phenomenon multiplying across the world. And it's the same sort of set of things, which is somebody who who posits there's chaos in society, increases the amount of it, and then and then comes forward with authoritarian, anti-democratic, anti-representative government solutions to to fix it. And that's a fucking terrifying place to be. So I just want to, I want to add, I want to add the, the role of the mainstream media to this conversation. Because if the mainstream media didn't amplify yeah. the tweets, etc., and spend endless hours debating them on these fake cable news panels 100%. that are ginned up for conflict and treat the news like entertainment then the social media postings would have much less influence. And the other thing about these chaos uh, voters, these kind of gremlin voters, is that you don't think that's right? No, I do there. think it's right. Can, can, I, can I interrupt yeah. and have a conversation? Is that, is that yes, I, the, the mainstream media has totally done that. But that's a, because the mainstream media is subject to all these forces of fragmentation and loss of audience and and the, the the mainstream what the mainstream media is is suffering from is it no longer has the authority it once had and it's and it's lost the authority not because it's it's covered a lot of tweets it's lost the authority because media has itself just turned into this fragmented universe and and cbs news i mean sorry john i know cbs news is wonderful you work for it it's great cbs news does not have the gravity and weight that it had 10 years ago 30 years ago 60 years ago and it will never get it back right. and so I don't think it's I don't think it's enough to say oh it's the mainstream media what? is doing this you know is doing the dirty work for the president I think it's you have to say these forces of fragmentation have have affected but the media I just and government that lets us and, off yeah. the hook way too much like yes I, there are these market forces and it's also true that we present ourselves as having some higher authority, having some moral compass that guides us, having some elevated principles, and then we act, in fact, often... Who's the we? 
We, I, I'll Who's just, the we? I'm not going to let anyone off the Who's hook. The I feel like that's wrong, but I especially feel this about television. No, it's a, it's a small fraction of people who are watching. It's like cable news, and it's a small fraction of audience, and you're talking about Fox, which is one of these agents of fragmentation. I'm not just no, talking actually, about Fox. I think it's, it's true about Fox. television across the well, board, and and to some degree, newspapers and yeah, others. Yeah, we don't need to. Entities we, we, too. We, yeah. You can broaden it even more yeah, if you would like. Yeah, we can. Uh, well... So I there's mean, no institutional legitimacy for anything anymore, right? But that's because well, in we part have also handed right. it over, and I mean, like, we haven't it handed it over. Well, it's yes, not, we have. No, we have. We have. I no, think we it's have. A, it, no. This is something we haven't handed it. Media You're defending has not, us. No, no, like, it's, a, it's contributory. I'm, it's yeah. it's not it's not just a single. It's a it's the it's exactly the complexity that you talk about. But but the but as Emily said, um, whether it's the New York Times or CBS or Time Magazine or any of those legacy big organizations that spend a lot of time making sure that there are standards, um, their job in part is to fight against. Now, they're businesses, so they have to have people. It's the Catholic Church. It's the U.S. Senate. It's the House of Representatives. It's every major, every, it's universities. Every significant institution in this country has much less credibility than it did a year ago, sure. ten years ago, right? But, but that's not every just like one. some but inevitable occurrence that we have no responsibility for. Right. We do have responsibility for, and universities also have. Right. Yeah, right. Anyway. So, and 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 also, most of those institutions that you named still have people inside them who say we still believe in our existing and original standards and we're going to fight against these forces and we shouldn't let those dark forces of darkness prevail, even if some of them are coming from within our own house. And we have to keep those standards because without standards, it's madness. And so that's... Uh, Can we go back also to the gremlin voters? That's now I'm thinking of them. So I, I yes, I think there... Surely there are some people who are like you know, cackling over burning down the world. I, I, in my gut, feel like there are more people who just feel like no matter what I do, my life doesn't change and get better. These politicians, they yap about solutions. It doesn't matter. And I see this kind of entertainment faux news that, you know, particularly Trump has been so, so good at promoting and peddling. And I'm just going to like laugh at it because there's no point in really paying attention to this game. My life hasn't changed enough, et cetera. Well, I'm not saying those people are correct, but I don't think they're, it's, I don't think that is a um, crazy view in itself at all. Well, and it's not just, I mean, this president has taken the, the link ever since basically candidates use the same processes that are used to sell lemon fresh pledge or any other consumer consumer product, it has been on a straight trajectory to creating a situation where people feel like I'm being gamed the way I'm gamed to buy mud flaps on the new car. And so once that happens, you they, it detaches from what's happening in their real lives. That's been going on before Trump. People obviously True. feel Different, it now, which is why it's so, up, right? it's so striking that politicians who, in any party, the way you change that is you inspire people, is that you create these fires inside of each each voter by by kindling something in them that they feel in a common way that then brings them and lifts them through whatever it is that you appeal to them. And it's and the paucity of inspirational uh, speech in politics is striking. I mean, that, that because that's the only way you can beat it. I don't. I I think that is just. I mean, really idealistic in a way that doesn't resonate. I think well, you, when you have the inequality that you have, when you have a, a lack of a shared 
you know, commonality, a shared sense of what the country is, a lack of a shared sense of mission to the country, the idea that political rhetoric is going to overcome these enormous political, economic, you know, social, Uh, religious, cultural forces seems hopeless. Well, so you're right. No, it's obviously not just rhetoric, but if you're going to do it, you have to. So clearly we've been at worse places than this. We did have a civil war and, you know, 600,000 people died. So we've been in worse places and the the sense the of one example that's the, literally the one example well 1968 things worse, were a this lot is worse, worse this is worse than 68 well whether it, well, 1968 was pretty bad you had the national guard you and were people born. dying in i <laughs> <laughs> was just i was you had people getting shot in major cities you know jersey city 30 people dying detroit 36 people dying like you we don't yet have that so we have we have gun we massacres. Had, we do. They're massac- It's different. It's different. Sure, sure. But El Paso. I mean, you you like that's a that's Bobby a political Kennedy shooting. And you have Bobby Kennedy and and Martin Luther King. I'm saying that though, that was 1968 was a pretty tough year. So my point is that there have been there are people now. Politics was a lot different back then. Um, you don't have the structural things in place that would create correction that you had. You, you had don't have shared that now. facts in a different way. You had authoritative news sources that had more, right. a greater well, share of no, the market than you we had. Now. They had a greater share because you didn't. There were people. I mean, certainly, if you look at the Wallace candidacy, uh, and you look even at the Goldwater candidacy, there were a lot of people supporting those two candidacies who felt that the shared facts were all made up. Right. Now, see, they didn't they have didn't an organizing have principle. News. Right. They, really or the, or the internet. Or, or the internet. The, which goes back to David's point about the chaos voters. One of the things that this paper finds, and that do, is true, is that there is a convening force of social media that they didn't have in 64 and 68. And that is, and that is what makes this different now and makes it much, much harder to beat back with rhetoric um, because you're, you're immediately atomized unless you can kindle something in individual Americans and to suggest that there that, that Americans across the country are so barren that they can't be moved. That's well, more you chaos also than try the... to move people with results. I mean, I actually think Mitch McConnell, right. while I wouldn't give him the inspiring award, when he personally, when he emphasizes, look, we've gotten 150 judges confirmed. That is a real legacy, a real accomplishment for his party. That is that should move his base, right? Right, but they're in control. This is this is a well. Theory that's a for, problem with not right, being in control right. of an organ sure. of government. Yes, yes. And, and it also goes to the fact that the Democrats trying to investigate and take testimony seems pretty ineffectual at this point. Now, maybe there's nothing that can be done about that. These subpoenas are in court in this kind of months-long way, but it feels like. Hey, you know, you said you were going to go get Trump's tax returns. Where are they? Like, they're the use of the House as a you're in control. I don't yeah. feel like we're seeing a whole lot of uh, fruits of that labor. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Coming soon from Slate Podcasts. So... First, it was Dade County. Voters in the Miami area repealed civil rights for gay people by a two-to-one margin. 
In the late 1970s, cities around the country began rolling back anti-discrimination laws that protected gay people. And then it was Wichita, St. Paul, Eugene. Successful campaigns against the gay community which shocked us all. A state senator from California watched the laws fall and saw an opportunity. Homosexuality is a most repulsive lifestyle. His name was John Briggs, and he wanted to deliver the anti-gay movement its biggest prize yet. California realized that they were coming for us. I'm Christina Cotarucci. This season on Slow Burn, we'll explore how a nationwide backlash against gays and lesbians led to a massive showdown in California. Now it's something called Proposition 6, the Briggs Initiative. It would call for firing any teachers in California who practice homosexuality. Your life as you knew it would be destroyed. We've got to fight back. We can't let this happen in California. The Briggs Initiative would be the first statewide vote on gay rights. With so much at stake, young people became activists. We were all coming out all day long, every day. (laughs) And activists became leaders. My name is Harvey Milk, and I'm here to recruit you. Slow Burn, Season 9, Gays Against Briggs. Out May 22nd, wherever you listen. If we lose here, it'll be 50 years before we ever get back up again. Like the drag queens say, take out the earrings, sharpen the nails. There ain't no going back. Gapfest fans, we are so happy to have Curtis Sittenfeld with us here in the Twin Cities. Curtis is the author of five novels and one amazing collection of short stories. Her novels include Prep, Eligible, which is a retelling of Pride and Prejudice, American Wife, which is a fictionalized biography of Laura Bush. Her short story collection, You Think It, I'll Say It, is amazing. It's just so good. It, I read that it was being adapted for television. True? True-ish? Um, should be true. Less, less true than it once was. Um, <laughs> <laughs> That's a thing that happens, but I they know. totally should adapt that. I will watch that. Thank yeah. you. Yeah. Thank you. Um, for our purposes, Curtis is also the American novelist who is most attentive and best at writing about politics. American Wife is a masterpiece. She also wrote a serialized novella about the Obama inauguration for me at Slate back in 2009. I, I bet you've forgotten that. No, no. I, I wondered if you had, you and I are the only ones. Who if we were the only ones who read it. That, now that it's been revived in my memory. Um, she wrote a short story about Hillary Clinton for Esquire and Excellent. also for her collection. And now be still our beating hearts she is working on a book with the working title of Rodham it's about who that's about about what if Hillary had Rodham. met Bill at Yale Law School in the way she really did they'd fallen in love but she hadn't married him and had gone on to lead a life apart from his so I I am so excited to read this book which we will get a chance to read next year at some point um, so Curtis you tweeted this week uh, you, you had a great tweet this week I seriously think, today anyway, that I may have written the great American novel. You might not realize it because I'm female and because the cover will probably be either a dress or a woman whose face you can't see. So this is just an an FYI. That's awesome. So why why are you so excited about it? Why are you so excited about Rodham? Um, well, so I, I, I well, first of all, she has to finish it. It's a good moment to be I know, excited that's so, about it. It is. It's funny because I think that um, when I tweeted that, and I can understand why in retrospect, um, 
people <laughs> thought I was completely finished with the book, which I would say I actually am 90% finished, but you all know there's a difference between <laughs> being 90% finished writing a book and 100%. I think I had, so there have been moments when I've thought, like, this is not coming together as I had imagined. This is, I've been working on it for two and a half years. And I think I will say yesterday I was having a day where I thought, oh my God, like, it's even better than I hoped. And so you <laughs> have to so celebrate awesome. those days. How, yeah. <laughs> How does that, does that roller coaster go like this or does it go like the EKG chart? Well, so I actually feel like the general rule, I think, is that if you feel like you had a great day of writing and then you look back at what you've produced, you're usually wrong. And if you feel like you had a really terrible day and you look back, you also are probably wrong. Oh, I was going to say you're right. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I, I, I think that it's less... I mean, again, there there are times when I'll and and I wrote. I mean, I know this is in the year 2019. Some people have, some of us have lost our attention span. So I I know this is a little bit daunting, but it might be like a 500-ish page. But there's there's a lot to say about if Hillary hadn't <laughs> married Bill. It turns out. Yeah. Um, and but yeah, I I think that. Um, part of being a novelist is just sort of getting to the the other side of that almost no one uh writes novel novels about politicians or and no one writes novels about first ladies you're now going to have written two novels about first ladies well, sort of because of course the, if hillary hadn't yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah but you you know what i'm saying here i, I do know what, what you're why saying. what are you why are you drawn why were you drawn to laura bush why are you drawn to hillary clinton so I, I think that I think it's fair to see a pattern, although I would say like my interest in Hillary Clinton is more as like the first female major party nominee for president. Like that's sort of the category I see her rather than as primarily. Well, particularly so if she di- doesn't marry Bill, you've actually converted her into that. Per- so are you saying David's defining her merely by her husband and not by her own achievements? I mean... I think I think it's I, I mean she is an issue. Well, actually, there are two things that sort of made me or like prompted me to write the novel. One was when Esquire reached out and said, "Do you want to write a short story?" This was in early 2016, and they said, "Do you want to write a story from the perspective of Hillary Clinton?" And the funny thing was, I had been invited because of my book American Wife. I had been invited to write a few essays about Hillary Clinton, and I had said no, thank you. Like during the 2016 election, leading up to it, I feel like. Almost nothing can be written about like who Hillary Clinton is to the American public that hasn't already been said. But to think like, what does Hillary think of us is a completely different question. Like, what does the world look like to her? Not not what do we think of her, but what does she think of us? The other thing that I had this sort of slow realization is leading up to and after the 2016 election for plenty of grade school children knew Hillary Clinton as the presidential nominee but they actually had no idea who Bill Clinton was let alone that she had been Lucky married to him oh, and it's Lucky well, children. but it's and it's it, it it raises this question of if if we had like we've been we Get, all experienced yeah, her with and, all that bad. Yeah, and we've there's this version, there's many things we've been told about her for 30 years, you know, some of which have been, you know, some were true, some were false, some were sort of true, but it's like if you could strip away a lot. Like, I, I sometimes do think... 
like if if she were you know the CEO of a Fortune 500 company, or if she were you know like the president of a university, and under some very random circumstances, I ended up sitting next to her at a dinner party. I think I feel like I'd be like that woman is so smart and interesting and accomplished, and, and instead somehow it's like I have thoughts about like her headbands from you know 1992 and. Right. One of the things I really liked about the Esquire story... By the way, also the press's fault. I mean, (laughs) the obsessions with a lot of her and her pantsuits and all that stuff. Yeah, and actually that's like the point of this Esquire story is to write about Hillary's experience of a journalist coming in repeatedly in her life in this invasive way. A journalist who, yeah, reminded me of different people. Uh, I was going to say, though, that Hillary says incredibly bland things in your story, even as she's thinking more interesting thoughts. And I wonder if that kind of voice and dialogue continues in the novel and whether that's hard because when someone is... The bland voice or the the interesting voice. Yeah, well, the internal voice, of course, is fascinating. But if you keep having to produce these banal political sound bites, like, how do you deal with that? Oh, no, it's much juicier. Because it's... I mean, first of all... You know, again, we we all, including me, of course, receive her as a public person. But before she was a public person, you know, she was a private person. And so, so, and that's kind of, in a way, to me, that's the appeal of a 500-page novel that you can, like, get to the point where the person is a public person, but then you also can show them when they're, like... 24 or 32 and like maybe with a coworker or with someone they date or someone they have a crush on because I do I do feel like we it's the very weird thing where where we have this access to kind of like very detailed information about these public figures but then we we sort of pretend that they're not real three-dimensional people like us like we are and they're not have you met either Hillary Clinton or Laura Bush and would you want to if you haven't um, and have you talked? If you have, have you talked to them about their fictional selves? Um, so I think the the short answer to like almost all those questions is no. Um, I, um, I, and I, I, if I were, I feel so sure Laura Bush has read your book. She's a librarian. Well, so people people have said that, but I do think she's so famous that I think that she she had to develop mechanisms for like tuning things out that if if I said like or if someone said to you you know Curtis wrote about a book about you Emily maybe you would find it irresistible yeah, well I'm not super famous I, yeah. I mean you're you're medium famous but no, no, no. No. <laughs> to, among among slate plus listeners you're yeah. super famous <laughs> <laughs> specific you know, <laughs> New York Times readers know um, so so but so I do think like if I were her I wouldn't have read it and no I've, I have never met Hillary Clinton I will say leading up to and then when American Wife was published which was in 2008 I would sometimes dream about Laura Bush and, and in the dream we were introduced and she knew I had written a novel about her and she thought it was distasteful but she was too polite to kind of call me out on it <laughs> And I will say, I've, the, the Laura Bush dreams have gone away, but I have dreamed a few times of Hillary. <laughs> so do you have, and do you, do you immerse yourself in Hillary Clinton so that the, the new character you create grows out of that? Or is it, do you recognize two totally separate people? When, and, yeah, that's, uh, a, that's an excellent question. So I, 
I have immersed myself in Hillary Clinton. Like I put on my Hillary Clinton costume, yeah. and um, and I do it. I try to sort of like like it's supposed to be a realistic. The premise is supposed to be realistic. Like really, what would have happened? And I will say, I, this is, I'm probably giving away way too much, but um, I've had very early readers who have two two of the four. <laughs> Like you know, and two are like related to me, but they're actually my harshest critics. But they've said reading the early passages where they fall in love at Yale Law School, um, like like is so convincing that I get upset knowing they're not going to be together, and then I reassure myself that they are together in real life. <laughs> oh my God, that seems to be like right where you want to be. I know, oh I, know I know, I know. I will. Say, I know. Weird. See, she wow. did write the great American yeah. novel. I, That's great. <laughs> gone so far down the rabbit hole that literally this is not a joke i i recently was like like should i move to fayetteville arkansas like it's actually it sounds yeah. delightful and yeah. then i That's picked out Robert my Carroll house kind of move. you oh, picked out your house on zillow or something <laughs> nice it's huh. like in this lovely historic neighborhood <laughs> but yeah like fayetteville i mean so hillary moved there in in August 1974, when Bill's running for Congress in Northwest Arkansas, and, and it, I again, it sounds like a really great, you know, like academic sort of hippie, like all the liberals in the state go there, and even though it's near the Bentonville. Austin of Arkansas. <laughs> um, so you have lived. I, I think you've lived. You grew up in Cincinnati. You've lived in Washington. Philly, St. Louis. St. Louis. Now you're in the Twin Cities. I want you to rank those cities. <laughs> So I, I will say this again, you know, I'm I've lived in other places, but I have lived in the Midwest for a lot of my life. And I I do I feel like it's really shocking to me that I didn't know how great the Twin Cities are. You, <laughs> even that there. And I, I swear I, I'm not just saying this. Because, like, it's it, it's a great like there are tons of writers. It's politically progressive. Um, it's beautiful, like the lakes. It's it's actually a great. I I might have to say that Minneapolis is number one. <laughs> can I wait? Can I say one other thing? Because of yeah. course I was listening. Yeah. I definitely think Elizabeth Warren is electable. <laughs> wait, can I why? Ask why do you feel so confident about that? As someone who's thought about female politicians well, it's, a lot. To me, it's like, why isn't she elected? Like, so many things. It's like, they have to happen, and then we know they can happen. And, and it's, it just seems like um, politics is so fluid, and, and there's so many things that... You know, it it seems implausible, and then afterwards, it seems inevitable. Right. And and I also, in terms of the thing, the thing you guys were saying about Biden, like imagining a Biden Trump face off, I I really sincerely think, and I I like Amy Klobuchar, I like Kamala Harris, I I like Elizabeth Warren, that like any woman who's reached the level of success they have has probably withstood a lot more like ugliness and criticism. And it's probably tougher than any man who's achieved. Drop, just drop the mic. Curtis know, Sittenfeld right? is the author of the forthcoming novel, Rodham, and the author of a whole bunch of other great novels. Curtis, thank you for joining us. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you, Curtis. 
All right, let's go to cocktail chatter. When you're having one of the very, very many craft brews that the city has, Emily Bazelon, what will you be chattering about? I was tremendously saddened this week by the death of Cokie Roberts, who is, I mean, I feel lucky to think of her as like one of the female journalists I might aspire to be. She seems to be someone who, everyone I've talked to who has met her thought that she was a lovely person. Mm -hmm. She just seems to be one of those sparky, generous presences that even in the cutthroat, elbow-throwing city of Washington is able to transcend some politics. And maybe some of you saw it. There is this amazing photograph circulating this week of Cokie Roberts with Susan Stamberg and Nina Totenberg many years ago. They're fairly young women. They're wearing clothes that look very much of that era. And they're pioneers. They are changing the profession. They are these female voices on public radio before it was anything like easy to be that person. And I feel so grateful to them and all the work they did. Um, It's just a good time to think about that. John Dickerson, what's your chatter? Amen to that. You know, another thing about uh, Koki is that all the stories you hear, or lots and lots of the stories you hear, are things she did out of the way. People she reached to who were not of her same age and was good to. You know, yeah, you yes, want she you want those right. stories. Um, okay, so uh, as uh, as. All of you know, I'm trying to finish a book. Um, still, I'm still trying to finish it. It's on the presidency and how the job is different than the thing we talk about during the campaigns. Um, and so when, during my research, I was looking for a book that told people how to prepare to vote, not like where to go with the polling place, but how to study the issues, what to, how to think about a president. And it turns out there aren't very many of those books. But there were th- they were written for the elections of 1900, 1908, and 1912. I don't know what happened I don't know what happened in 1904. And they're all in a Ziploc bag. Well, I ordered one of them. It is here tonight in a plastic bag, and it smells like your grandmother's basement, um, because that's probably where it came from. And it's called Great Issues and National Leaders Live Questions of the Day Discussed, The Voter's Guide for the Campaign of 1900. Who are Um, those people? uh, That's McKinley, and that's uh, William Jennings Bryant. Okay, so I opened it, and what fell out? But this three-page little pamphlet. So this, to me, was more... <laughs> this key word, to me, uh, was more interesting um, than the book. What is the pamphlet? It is the agent's key to how to sell this book about how to prepare yourself. <laughs> That's so awesome. This pamphlet is for your private use. It is the key with which you are to open the door to success in selling this book. No one can succeed at any work without preparation, and the more thorough the preparation, the better the success. We give you this as a guide. We advise you to memorize the description word for word. It's three, it's four pages. <laughs> word, we advise you to memorize this word for word. They were and, less distracted in 1900, huh? <laughs> they had a lot of time. We advise you to memorize word for word and then beat it all you can. But be sure you never do worse. And ladies and gentlemen, I tell you, that's just what I'm going to do. Because this is the most complete and in every respect, the finest campaign book issued. It is authentic with new and fresh, not printed from old plates, profusely illustrated with portraits and illustrations. So it turns out this is not the actual book. The actual book is 500 pages. This is a teaser. Okay. 
So, and this, what this teaser was for, it's got a cloth cover. It does really smell. Yeah, it's really. Let's see, are you going to? Uh, I will turn to it, but you may, uh, you, we, we may have a little show and tell. Um, yeah, and it'll leave a little mark on your hands. Anyway, this is the, this is the teaser that, that this is in the era of, do you want to show the class that what the pictures are like? Mrs. Inside? William, this is Mrs. William McKinley. Yeah. It's chock full of photographs, the finest, not made from old plates. These are fresh, new photographs. This is the era of the door-to-door salesmen. So chaps in like lumpy suits and those hats they were always adjusting are racing towards the front door, pushing aside the, the, the encyclopedia salesman and pushing aside the fuller brush salesman so they can get to your front Teddy door. Teddy Roosevelt. And show you Teddy Roosevelt, the vice presidential nominee to McKinley. And boy, wasn't that an important decision when in Jan- January, September 1901, Whoa, McKinley died. Adlai Stevenson, the elder, Illinois. was the vice presidential for the for Democrats. Wow. Who knew? Not I didn't even me. know there was an Adlai Stevenson, the elder. May I mark you down for a copy? <laughs> <laughs> What's it going to take to put you in a new administration today? <laughs> so people, the, the salesman would have been propelled by this um, pamphlet, which I'm gonna, I've made a copy because this is uh, it's falling apart. But anyway... Um, and they would be propelled by the, the words on these pages. Call attention to the fact that this is the most handsome and magnificent book. The cover representing what the book stands for. A thoroughly patriotic, nonpartisan book. A book which will be an ornament for the home table. As well as most interesting, useful, and valuable book for immediate use. So from that breathless description, um, you can see basically what we have on cable news today. Um, <laughs> David, pass me back the book, please, because it is written in the chattiest, which I think we should return to, frankly, the chattiest kind of um, sort of everything's great in America, even though big things are happening. Here's the opening line. This will be the last presidential campaign of the century, and in many respects, it bids fair to be one of the most interesting and most important. The results of the Spanish War was to involve the United States in new and vast responsibilities. Whether rightly or wrongly, that's key, whether rightly or wrongly... (laughs) We have the Philippines, Cuba. (laughs) (laughs) But wait, there's more. We have the Philippines, Cuba, Puerto Rico, and Hawaii on our hands. What shall we do with them? Yes, Mrs. Smith, what shall we do with them? So, you see that rightly or wrongly. That's where the both sides comes from. And throughout this thing, throughout this, it, 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 it tells the seller to make sure that they, they point out that this is a nonpartisan book. Um, so, but, how do you sell the merchandise? Well, you sell the campaign. This campaign will be the most interesting and most important campaign either you and I have witnessed. Which you hear now, right? Every campaign is the most important I one. I always think it's true. Yeah. Great issues embodying, I might say, the life of the republic come to the front, and national leaders must stand the most careful scrutiny. The re- their real worth must be known, whether they be men of honesty, ability, and experience. And then, in a twist that seems familiar today, it is important to you and me whether the trusts shall boss everything. So that's Elizabeth Warren. So... Um, 
you you go through the book. It goes on for pages about how I'm supposed to instruct the sales per, the the person who's buying it, and then we will close on the hard sell at the end. If after showing you everything that's in this book and all the pictures, here's the script for how it's supposed to end. Now, Mr. Blank. Everybody wants this new and fresh campaign book, which, as you see, will be a book of lasting value, for it contains the history of the past and present, which one needs frequently for reference. And here is a place for your name. Now, mister, and then it has instructions, handing him your pencil and pointing at the line on which you would like him to subscribe. Because remember, I'm just coming to show him the teaser. He's going to write his name, and then I'll deliver the full book for you. Everyone who has seen this prospectus seems to be pleased with it. You will see from these names, parentheses, showing your list of subscribers, what kind of people are attracted by it. And I'm sure you will agree that you want your name down with the rest. Then it gives a little more instruction. From this Nudge, p- peer pressure. Yes, exactly. From this point forward, we leave the agent to execute his own tact and judgment. Be careful never to allow your customer to say no. <laughs> <laughs> If it appears that he is about to do so, turn quickly to some interesting picture (laughs) or subject and begin to explain it or read some passage that will please him. Never lose your self-possession. This is the critical point. And your tact and skill must all be brought to bear at this place to book the order. So these days, of course, are gone. No one's... No one sells their books in person before it's completed using deceptive and marginally entertaining (laughs) patter. (laughs) That's done now by Amazon that puts up an early link to the book. Pleading emails? It's called The Hardest Job, (laughs) $14.99. No. Act now, now, ladies and gentlemen. You know the kinds of people who will be buying this book and you will want to count yourselves among them. All right, so my my chatter my chatter is also like it's a, like a John Dickerson chatter actually. Is it going to go on as long? Not not quite. Okay. It will feature presidential audio tape though. Um, so so some of you who know me know that I have a, a real thing about pandas, which is that I cannot stand them. I think they're fraudulent and lazy and neutered and ill-tempered. And I grew up in Washington, D.C., and if you grew up in Washington, D.C. in the 70s, you were constantly dragged to the zoo to see this pair of pandas that Mao gave to Nixon in 1972 when the U.S. opened diplomacy with China. And these pandas would sit lumpishly, (laughs) drearily, occasionally mauling a keeper or failing to breed, and then when they did manage to breed, they would then sit on the baby that they had had and suffocate it. but they got away with it because Americans were duped by the kind of fancy paint job and the elegant fur. <laughs> and it's since then, pandas have become this tool of Chinese diplomacy, and, and China rents pandas to the United States at extortionate rates. You get a panda breeding pair. There, I think there are four or five of them now in the U.S., but China maintains ownership of all cubs that are born, so after when a cub hits four years old, they exfiltrate the cub back to China. And... And now pandas are getting caught up in the, the Trump trade war because they, there's a 20-year a lease on a pair of pandas in Washington, which are the, the, those are the marquee pandas, the D.C. pandas. And there's this fear that China is going to refuse to renew that lease when it comes up next year. Um, and there's a worry that they're going to be sent home. I'm not worried oh about God, this. We could have a panda war. Yes, there could be a panda war. Um, 
I'm not worried about this, but the Washington Post is worried about it. The Washington Post historically assigns more reporters to the Panda Beat than it does to, like, HHS. Uh, and I want to, I just want to celebrate a really great piece of, they did last month where they talked about the, the fact that these pandas could get sent back to China. And it turns out they uncovered an amazing piece of audio tape, which is that Richard Nixon, when the pandas came to originally in 1972, was obsessed with the pandas. And he had some of the same interests that I do in pandas. And so there was this wonderful um, conversation that he had with a Washington Star reporter that he wanted to hype about the pandas arriving. But he, Nixon had some reservations. So we're just going to play the tape of Nixon talking to this Washington Star reporter. Now, as a matter of fact, uh, let me tell you an interesting thing about that you, you must not, <laughs> you, can, you can only use on your own if you want, uh, and went on and on, but I was just talking to Rob Haldeman, who talked to his Chinese hosts, and this question of mating is very interesting. These are the male and the female. Uh-huh. The, problem with the, the problem, however, with pandas is that they don't know how to mate. The only way they learn how is to watch other pandas mate, you see? <laughs> and so they're keeping them there a little while, these are younger ones, to sort of learn, you know, how it's done. Now, if they don't learn it, they'll get over here, nothing will happen. So uh, I just thought you should should have your best reporter out there to see whether well, these pandas will. have learned. So now that I've given you the story of pandas, let me get, let you get back to your more serious questions. <laughs> And he was right. Those pandas didn't learn anything. They, they <laughs> failed entirely. That is our show for today. The Gap Fest is produced by the Twin Cities' own Jocelyn Frank. Woo! Our researcher, our researcher is also a Midwesterner, Chicago's Bridget Dunlap, Faith Smith, and Britt Pulley pulled together this, this show here in St. Paul thanks to the Fitzgerald Theater for hosting us. Gabriel Roth is the editorial director of Slate Podcast. June Thomas is the managing producer. You should follow us on Twitter at, at @SlateGabFest and tweet your chatter to us. For Emily Bazelon and John Dickerson, I'm David Plotz. Thanks for having us here, St. Paul. We'll talk to you next week. All right, friends. Thank you for the cheers. That's, you can keep that up in a second. We're going to um, have questions. So we're going to have a, a brief Q&A. So if you want to come, there's mics uh, stage left, stage right. Yeah, hi. Uh, Joe Biden's age and capacity has kind of been an open discussion, uh, especially since Julian Castro's attack on him during the debates, which seemed to fail miserably in the polls and in the media. So I'm wondering, is there a more politi- politically expedient or polite or civil way for other candidates to bring up that issue? And maybe more importantly, do they have a responsibility to, even if it's not politically expedient, given the stakes of the situation? It's a great question. They ch- The first real campaign I covered was Bob Dole in 1996. And this was a big question with Dole, too. And none of the candidates could figure out a way to do it. Um, and also in his case, and as it is a little bit with Biden, too, it's a stalking horse for other stuff, which is... We think he's too moderate and all that. I don't know that there's a way to to um, to bring it up successfully. Um, I mean, I think basically the way the smart candidates have done it is push him into corners about things from the past, which when he talks about them, um, A, he's constrained by the politics of the time. B, he knows that so you can see in his head him trying to figure out who he's going to offend and why and what he has to say, which is just hard and complicated. Um, and then three, he'll tend to use expressions that um, I remember when Bob Dole referred to the Brooklyn Dodgers. Um, 
you know, Record it was player was in that category. Yeah, except the the thing the thing is he was hipper than he knew because my son and daughter both have record players and play records all the time. So it's um, a lot of people are playing records again. He but was with um, the youth. Yeah, but uh, I think that's probably the best way for them to do it over here. So I've been thinking a lot about federalism lately, as we all want to do, um, particularly in light of the Trump administration's challenge of California's restrictions on emissions. And I'm wondering what all of you, particularly Emily, thinks about this kind of flip-flopping of partisanship when it comes to federalism and states' rights. I mean, you put that so well, and I'm so glad you brought up this issue. It is pretty amazing to see, particularly the lawyers in the Justice Department make these arguments which are so contrary to positions that Republicans in particular have taken in the past, not just about states' rights and the kind of longer-term, like, disfavored uh, history of that term, but also just the idea that we live in a laboratory of democracy and states should be able to have a lot of policymaking authority because they are closer to the voters than this federal government. So it is amazing to see um, people abandon that position when it's no longer uh, the policy answer that they want the states to be giving. Hi there. Um, The term socialism seems to be a profanity these days that's used by the president and the right wing. Is there a way that um, the left can recover that word and really actually show its definition so that the people that would benefit most from those policies could actually fight for it? There's a bunch of great quotes about this. There's Truman's uh, famous one about um, Republicans always calling things socialists that are... uh... GabFest fans, that was just a teaser. To hear the rest of our Slate Plus conversation, go to slate.com slash GabFest Plus to become a Slate Plus member today. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Coming soon from Slate Podcasts. So, first it was Dade County. Voters in the Miami area repealed civil rights for gay people by a two-to-one margin. In the late 1970s, cities around the country began rolling back anti-discrimination laws that protected gay people. And then it was Wichita, St. Paul, Eugene. Successful campaigns against the gay community which shocked us all. A state senator from California watched the laws fall and saw an opportunity. Homosexuality is a most repulsive lifestyle. His name was John Briggs, and he wanted to deliver the anti-gay movement its biggest prize yet. California realized that they were coming for us. I'm Christina Cotarucci. This season on Slow Burn, we'll explore how a nationwide backlash against gays and lesbians led to a massive showdown in California. Now it's something called Proposition 6, the Briggs Initiative. It would call firing any teachers in California who practice homosexuality. Your life as you knew it would be destroyed. We've got to fight back. We can't let this happen in California. The Briggs Initiative would be the first statewide vote on gay rights. rights rights With so much at stake, 
young people became activists. We were all coming out all day long, every day. <laughs> and activists became leaders. My name is Harvey Milk, and I'm here to recruit you. Slow Burn, Season 9, Gaze Against Briggs. Out May 22nd, wherever you listen. If we lose here, it'll be 50 years before we ever get back up again. Like the drag queens say, take out the earrings, sharpen the nails. There ain't no going back.